and welcome to another episode of Hospitals in Focus. I'm your host, Chip Kahn. COVID-19 is a human tragedy that has spawned a healthcare and economic crisis in the United States and across the world. In recent episodes, we have examined the impact of COVID on healthcare delivery. Today, we will focus on the economic implications of COVID for hospitals and health systems. We will look at the financial problems COVID has caused, the mitigation undertaken by the Congress and the administration, and the implications of both the problems and this mitigation for the future of patient care in hospitals and health systems. But before we get started with our conversation, I wanna ask you to take a minute to rate, review, and subscribe to Hospitals in Focus. Rating us five stars will help us to keep creating content, which I hope you find informative and worth your time. COVID has imposed an unprecedented triple whammy on hospital care, levying a significant toll that has immediate and possible long-term implications for hospitals and health systems and the patients and communities that we serve. First, throughout the nation, under instructions from governors and local officials, Hospitals basically shut down for all but the most essential services. They had to stop most non-emergency scheduled procedures like cancer treatments, placement of cardiac stents, and joint replacements. Second was mandated preparations for the pandemic. It meant hospitals had to gear up for a surge of COVID-19 patients, including buying PPE, often at outrageous cost, and building out alternative ICU and additional patient care areas, which has had implications for staffing also. And third are those communities that have the experience of actually being a COVID hotspot. Hospitals in these areas are dealing with very sick patients, straining resources, stressing staff, and frankly, having long and difficult patient stays, often ending in death. All of this has had staggering financial effects on hospitals and health systems. The very survival of healthcare services as we've known them is now a potential question in many communities. Our guest today is particularly well-suited to comment on the present and future state of healthcare financing and delivery. J.B. Silvers is a renowned healthcare financial expert who recently wrote an important op-ed that appeared in MarketWatch. In the piece, he compared the current state of hospitals with that, that of banks during the 2008 financial crisis. Long story short, JB sees parallels for today's hospitals and health systems due to COVID with what occurred to the banking industry more than a decade ago. We will discuss this and his thoughts of what is necessary going forward. I am pleased to have JB with us today. How are you doing, JB? Great. Thanks for inviting me, Chip. JB, you currently hold several distinctive teaching positions, and you also have extensive experience with health systems and managed care. Can you talk a bit about your career, where you are focused now, and why you are uniquely positioned to understand the current and quite unique forces impacting health care and facility financing? Well, I started as an engineer and then a professor of finance, uh, but I was grabbed by the issues in health care uh, while I was on the Harvard Business School faculty uh, many, many years ago. So for most of the rest of my time, well, largely here at, uh, at Case Western Reserve, I studied and taught a lot about healthcare finance, payment and policy issues. But along the way, I've wandered around the health system 
in a variety of ways, serving on uh, what's, what's now MedPAC, it was ProPAC called then, ran a health insurance company for a while, uh, 12 years on the Joint Commission Board, and now vice chair of a uh, hospital, Anthony Medical Center Safety Net, as well as doing research and such. Most of the time, I've been concerned about financial risk in healthcare, how we measure it, how we manage it, how we absorb it, and then how we react to these kind of choices that we have. JB, in your op-ed that I cited, you make the comparison between the banks during the 2008 financial crisis and hospitals and health systems today facing the pandemic. Will you explore that comparison and discuss the implications? Well, it's interesting on both cause and the effect. In 2008, the problem there came from a mistaken assumption about how diversification and risk work. How could all those mortgages go bad at the same time and threaten the whole system? We never built that into our models. So when it happened, it was a big issue. In 2020, We didn't really anticipate the threat of a virus that would get everyone seriously ill at the same time, with much the same threat to to this vital part of our society. So action to save the financial system in 2008 was really critical. It had to be done or the system would have gone down and society would have suffered. And I think there's a parallel. Uh, There's a need for action to save the healthcare system now in a similar way. Your op-ed focused on hospital liquidity, the effects of massive revenue loss from hospitals and health systems basically shutting down vast lines of service, all while meeting at the at least the second point I made and sometimes all three levels of this triple whammy I talked about in my introduction. Will you describe what this has meant for institutions which pre-COVID were full of patients and also those in rural America or elsewhere who were already facing fiscal issues. Well, as many of your listeners may know, most hospitals are lucky to break even on Medicare and Medicaid. Um, it's the commercial payments that allow them to, uh, to survive on relatively small margins. This is not a big margin business. But when elective and non-emergent cases are gone, which they just immediately disappeared once government acted, this delicate balance is really upset. So without some external help, the losses are huge from an an accounting point of view, and the cash needs uh, mount very quickly. The threat is both insolvency, that is you can't pay your bills right now, and uh, ultimate bankruptcy uh, when you can't pay your debts. So it's a mounting issue that's very serious. The federal government has responded in a coordinated fashion by passing the CARES Act and a later bill, which created an $175 billion provider relief fund. And they've also offered advanced payments for Medicare through a program called the Medicare Accelerated Advanced Payment Program. Is this response sufficient to meet the immediate challenge? If it is only a start, uh, where do we have to go next? Well, it sounds good, but there are two problems with what the government's done. The first, uh, the CARES Act program, uh, are grants, they're gifts, they're given to the system, but they're targeted at COVID-related services. So these are things that you have to do to meet the immediate crisis, the payment for testing and such and backup capacity. 
but they but they don't offset enough of that lost business to make you whole. Uh, the county losses are going to be massive. There's just no question. The American Hospital Association assumes they're about fifty billion dollars in lost every losses every month. So the first is it's not enough to provide to replace the revenue that you lost. So that that's the the bankruptcy threat. The, the solvency question. Uh, was addressed to some extent by the advanced, uh, the accelerated advanced payment, which is really a borrowing against future Medicare revenue. Um, so you're, you're borrowing against future billings for Medicare services, assuming they will show back, show up again when, when this is over. But the problem is you have to pay it back. So effectively, uh, we've postponed the crisis from a cash point of view for three months till the fall. So we're going, to, we're going to have major trouble when Medicare revenue comes back, but is immediately taken away to pay back these, these short-term loans. Let's look beyond this immediate action and assume hopefully that most of this liquidity that's been provided is sufficient to keep hospitals and health systems afloat for the next few months. Uh, if we look back to the 2008 financial crisis, not all the financial institutions survived. There was a lot of restructuring. So once we get past this short-term liquidity issue, what is, what, what's next? What, what are the implications for institutional solvency that's a little different from immediate liquidity? And from a public policy standpoint, what is the role of government, do you believe, in terms of dealing with the possible restructuring that we might anticipate occurring. Well, that's where it gets really interesting, Chip. We had to do what we did right now to keep the hospitals afloat this summer, uh, during the spring and summer, because otherwise they would have just closed down. You just can't take away all the business and expect them to stay and stay afloat. But when you violate loan covenants or you can't make the payroll, then decision shifts to others. And that's uh, largely what happened in 2008. 2008 was largely the bank regulators and the Fed who rescued the system. They provided the, the, the financing, but they also restructured it. They, they rescued some, they merged others, and they let, uh, let some financial institutions close. So we have whole sectors of, of the financial structure that, that aren't there anymore, uh, and a whole bunch of others that are merging with somebody else. So something similar might happen here for the marginal providers. And that, that's where it's interesting to speculate what might happen. Uh, the issue is, is how to help those that are critical parts, the ones you really can't let fail, the too big to fail, or in this case, too important to fail, while helping others to transition to some, to some other status. Um, we don't have anything, unfortunately, like the Fed that would let that happen. Uh, for the financial structure, we had a, a, a large institution, large government agency, who supervised it so that it would, uh, it would, we could do it in an orderly fashion. In this case, we might just result in the old-fashioned capitalism with big winners uh, uh, and big losers based on market forces. And that, that may be pretty chaotic. I think we've got some tough times ahead in sorting this all out. Let's just take... A community. Uh, how do how do you see that sorting process taking place? Uh, maybe we shouldn't have names, but if you could sort of describe one or two cities that you know, and maybe illustrate for us uh, what the implications are of this. And and I guess 
I don't want to get off on a, on a separate tangent before you answer that, but one of the issues that we haven't, I think, come to grips with and we don't know is what if we get back into a situation in the fall where we're again emptying hospitals of conventional normal service uh, it, to prepare for a second wave of COVID? And, and what does that all imply? Well, that's that's the doomsday scenario, obviously, uh, and it's a very real threat. In 2008, we managed to get rid of or neutralize most of the underlying problem. We we did the TARP program. We bought out mortgages. We uh, guaranteed, made massive guarantees. We basically made the problem go away. You can't do that with a virus. <laughs> There's nobody out there that's going to neutralize the virus, unless and until we get a we get a, a vaccine. So the only real solution for this thing is to is to deal with that. But the problem is, vaccines are uh, the viruses have a nasty way of of changing over time, and so it's pretty predictable. This will happen again. We're going to have another rogue virus out there that will uh, affect us. So I think we need to think of in the longer term as well as short term. And that means we may restructure the system in multiple ways. Uh, in the short term, <clears throat> I think uh, I think that we've accelerated a lot of the existing trends. Uh, we've had maybe 25% of the hospitals that are in weak financial position to begin with. Uh, and they might have hung on for a while and then ultimately closed. I, I've done that in my early part of my career here in Cleveland. I followed hospitals that closed. They closed because nobody went there anymore. And we're going to have that happen a lot. People will not want to go to hospitals that are marginal, where they think they might come out worse than they did when they went in. Uh, we're, we're going to still have postponed surgeries and people avoiding. So the question is where and how and, and what kind of healthcare access do we need? Uh, and I think much like, uh, this is a bit of a tangent, but I think it's important, much like telehealth has been accelerated probably 10 years by this last three-month experience. We're going to have some of those, and that was happening anyway. We were using the Internet for everything. That's going to happen with the restructuring of the system. So some of those marginal hospitals that are, uh, were out were on the edge are going to close. There's no question about that. And the question is, what do we replace them with? Distance medicine is going to be a big chunk of that. Transition to uh, trans uh, being able to get the patients to the right place at the right time. We've now sort of gotten past the hump where I think we can think of some significantly large ways to do it. Just you ask about specifics. In Cleveland, the board of the hospital I'm on, Metro Health, uh, we're rebuilding the whole campus. And the interesting thing about that, it's a large academic medical center. We're going to have half the beds on the campus that we started with. It's going to be a, a building a new hospital to academic standards with all the healthcare and safety stuff you'd want, but with a much smaller footprint on the main campus because people don't need to go to the main campus. They're going to have ambulatory care. Now they're going to have distance care and it's going to be distributed. So I think that the, the nature of the system is going to change, and we've just accelerated that pretty dramatically, I think, in the last three months. Before we close out, JB, I'd, I'd like to ask actually a drill-down question and get your advice on it. Uh, we talked a bit about the Medicare Accelerated Advance Payment Program and the stiff terms that program now has uh, if Congress doesn't otherwise change it. 
where uh, after a number of months, actually for many hospitals, it'll happen this summer, they will have their Medicare payment garnished until uh, the advance payments they received are paid off. Do you think uh, that there's a level 20, 25% that could be garnished rather than 100 uh, that would still be sustainable for hospitals in terms of paying this debt back? Is that reasonable? What's your view on that? Well, that, that's a that's a question for spreadsheet analysis, and I don't have an off-the-top answer. Yeah, they could be. I, I would see it even um, even more. There's even a more interesting policy approach, Chip. And I think much like we, if you go back at the end of the 40s and 50s, we did the Hill-Burton program when we needed to rebuild the whole healthcare system. And that was basically a form, uh, most of it, some were grants, most of them were loans, but they, you didn't have to pay them back as long as you met the conditions. And the conditions were largely, you had to take care of the uncompensated care. You had to take care of poor people. This is before Medicare and Medicaid. And that worked pretty well. So those, those loans got paid off in kind over a period of time. I think we have an interesting opportunity, given the fragmented system we've got, to provide an incentive for hospitals to get together and think ahead collectively about how we're going to deal with the next crisis that's coming along, because it will come along. How do we decide how much standby capacity we need to have? How many ventilators, if you want to go to that simplistic uh, uh, measure? Uh, how, how much bed capacity we need to have? All the things we're talking about right now. But more importantly, how do we coordinate that care? What do we do as a contingency plan next time around and where are we going to put where are we going to put those patients when they show up and even maybe even more important how do we do the testing and the prevention care that we need to do if we could organize a way a policy approach that said look hospitals if you can meet these standards you're going to have x percent of your loan forgiven over y time period and maybe x and y are in large percentages are small, maybe they're over months or maybe over years, but maybe we have a lever here to get into the healthcare system. <laughs> we actually have a chance to do a national approach, or at least a regional approach, to what is obviously a problem that goes to the population, not to an individual uh, provider. I would love to see a, a policy discussion on that one. I think that might be have some really interesting possibilities. That's great, JB. Thank you so much for your insights, and we really appreciate you joining us today on Hospitals in Focus, uh, and we hope that our audience found our discussion useful and informative. Great. Thanks. Join us next time as we speak with experienced leaders on new ideas about healthcare delivery and financing. Please listen, rate, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you haven't already, you can follow the Federation on social media at FAH Hospitals and me at Chip Kahn. This was Hospitals in Focus. I'm Chip Kahn. Thanks again for listening.